creeds and criticism meet. of Reference Podcast. Welcome back to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And we're glad to be back. We are back. Yeah, so we had a bunch of random, somewhat horrible things happen, and other, and some good things too. Yeah, some good things, yeah. Um, there were, gosh, I had three grandparents in the hospital, um, a death, a surprise death, mm. um, Nick got into a car crash. He's yep. alive. Yep, and got a new car finally. So that's all slowly unscrewing itself. So yeah. that's wonderful. I actually, um, so I was, <laughs> I caught the news about his car crash right before I was going to a work meeting. Yep. <laughs> Yikes. Oh yeah. my gosh. And I was laid out for about a week. It hurt really bad. I made sure he stayed in bed. He he had this <sighs> like grand idea that he was going to just take a half day um, well, and go back to work well, after figuring out his car crash and sleep on his parents' couch. Well, it's like being a hockey player. That's the mentality I have. You lose a finger, eh, just patch it up. I'll go back out on the ice and play. Okay, so, I guess that's kind of the mentality I had when I was in martial arts, yeah, too. See, like, so you well, got to cut me a little bit a little of slack. Toe. It yeah. could be broken off. Yeah, okay. you, you can break a pinky. You only need the other three fingers and, and a the, thumb to catch. And the toes, you just like wrap them up, and you're good. Yeah, or kick it back into place a few times, and boom. If it doesn't hurt, you've done it right. Yeah, I've got but, like really weird bone structure in some of my toes. Yes. <laughs> anyway, yep. that was content. But yeah, we've had a bunch of things... Um, Something's good. Um, Nick also caught, well, not so good. Nick caught the plague. Yeah. Whatever flu was going around Southern California, I had that and got laid out for about four days. And I survived. Yeah. Huh? I, you didn't get sick. I don't know why. You're the one who usually gets sick. I know, done, right? But, so I, I yeah. think I think the car crash really jostled my immune system and released yeah. a bunch of fun toxins. Because if you, anyone's had whiplash, it's awful. And it releases all sorts of toxins from your muscles that have been building up and stuff like that. So it was a wonderful experience. I highly recommend getting sick and not doing anything for three days. On the plus side, um, Nick is getting close to perhaps getting a new job. So mm-hmm. maybe we'll tell you about that later. We'll see. If not, we'll just be strangely silent about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll never mention it again. Yes. Um, I've also been um, applying to the University of Aberdeen in Scotland to finish my PhD. So we'll see how that turns out. Mm-hmm. should hear some news back. If not, we will also never mention this again. We'll never mention again. this again, yes. We'll, just we'll edit on. it. No, we won't. No. Um, and also, I've started um, working... Well, I've been working for Christians for Biblical Equality as an independent contractor for quite a while now, but um, work is starting to pick up again with it. And um, Basically, I manage and create new projects for them. They're a great organization. We've given them a shout-out lots of times because yep. we believe in their cause, and we hope you all become members one day, actually. Mm-hmm. So the roadmap for today, we've got, of course, our beverages of choice that we're going to be talking about. <laughs> Notice it's no longer beer corner. <laughs> and we've got book corner as well, which is included there. And today we're going to be talking about Junia, the apostle mentioned in Romans 16, verse 7. We're going to be talking about the gender, because there's a history there. Uh, their apostolic status, which is now being contested by a few people. And the overall context of the verse in question, as well as uh, other contingent factors. Yeah, so this was the one that we left out for Romans 16, because it's a lot like more of a technical discussion, which we will Well, it shouldn't be be a technical discussion. That's right. Sometimes these things become issues only because we make them. Yes. But sometimes things are a little bit 
uh, more difficult. Yeah, so, like the one Timothy two text. That's a genuinely yeah. everyone's got to wrestle. This one, no. Only recently have a few people decided to make waves about it, and most people aren't convinced. But we'll talk more about that. Yeah, later. you'll you'll see what we mean. Yes. So I am drinking right now. Huh? The Epic Brewery, which is an Epic Brewing Company, they're Praise the Haze New England Style IPA. It is, you hold it up to the light, it's hazy, you can't see through it. It's super juicy and wonderful. I'd give Allison some, but she would hit me because apparently she thinks she's above this now. Oh. Mm-hmm. I've got my limoncello. Ew, hoity-toity. I just love how you've become like the bourgeois, like, oh, I've got my limoncello, you know, kind of thing. I'm like, I'm drinking beer. So I I'm love draft beer. My um, grandma Gloria is oh. the one that introduced me to limoncello. That's her drink of choice with um, some vanilla ice cream. And it's a great, I don't know, I love it. Hmm. So maybe it's because it reminds me of her, I don't know. Well, cheers. There we go. Sip. My grandma Gloria is still alive, by the way. Yes. <laughs> and, just... and kicking and screaming. Yeah. Hey. What? Against the machine. Okay. Yeah, she does rage against the machine. She does rage against that the machine. That does happen quite a bit. My grandma's awesome. Yes. So, what are we doing right now? So, Book Corner, what are you reading? Oh, shoot. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm reading a bunch of things. Uh, maybe I won't go into too much detail on any one thing. Um, so, I actually love binge reading, reading um, stuff from the psychology world. Hmm. Um, I'm not, I don't have any degree in psych. Um, I just read random things. So I've probably read maybe four, five small so, books. Something like that, yeah. Um, in the last maybe several months. Hmm. And um, I've also been um, binge reading some Martin Luther King Jr. Um, collected works. Hmm. Um so I'm going to be going through that Very nice. maybe in the future more. Um, I also actually like to read um, books on team building and uh, having a functional organizational structure. And I, I don't know, it rubbed off on me in my sales job because I used to have us read these kinds of books. <laughs> and so I, I enjoy it. Um, I enjoy anything with that has to do with um, group dynamics or um, sometimes understanding why people do the way they do in large groups or individual person to person. Yeah. Very yeah. nice. Yeah. I've been reading, uh, Stanley Porter's commentary on Romans. It's one of the first thoroughly linguistic commentaries on Romans. That's been very fascinating to read. He, uh, comes to very conservative conclusions on major sections in Romans, but then you get to the thing we're going to be talking about today and he, uh, is quite passionate about Junia, which is really cool to see. And so, yeah, it's a very fascinating commentary, very technical, but if you need kind of a, a surface-level dive into linguistics in the New Testament, Stanley Porter is kind of the, the god-king of that discipline in the evangelical world, and a very nice guy, by the way. I've had some really fun conversations with him about participles. Hmm. So, nice. very cool guy, and uh, I recommend that book to you. It's actually pretty cheap for a commentary on Romans. It's under 400 pages, I think, too, so it's, it's a good one. It actually breaks new ground, unlike most commentaries on Romans. Yeah, hmm. nice. So, lead us into Junia and gender. Actually, uh, let's go ahead and read We should actually read first. this. And you remember, like, this passage. I'll let you read it, Nick. But um, remember, this had a bunch of female leaders that were... This passage had a bunch of female leaders that were named. Mm -hmm. And this is the one that we skipped over. So, I'll let Nick um, go ahead and... This is the one where everyone was mentioned. Everyone and their mother, literally. Yep. Priscilla and Aquila... You know, Mary and all these women and all these guys, Urbanus, Julia. Slaves are, a lot of slaves are in there, probably. Yep, Olympus, and... Aquila, all these all these people are named. 
And then there's this one little name in verse 7. So I'm reading from the Common English Bible. Greet or say hello to Andronicus and Junia, my relatives and my fellow prisoners. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So yeah, that's... Can we go home now? Yeah, let's go. All right, let's go. Yep. So... There are multiple things that are disputed by some people and many people in this section, in this verse, uh, and we're going to go through all of it. Yep. So first up, um, we'll cover the issues that people have with the gender of Junia. Mm-hmm. Um, then we'll go over, um, is she an apostle or a apostle with, I don't know, parentheses? <laughs> yeah. Lowercase apostle or apostle in italics. Or italics. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or quotations, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, is she an apostle qualified or, you know, we're, we're going to go through all that. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, in terms of gender, um, Junia is, it starts, it's, it's basically a Latin name that's written in the first declension accusative form of the Greek in Romans 16, 7. Um, and it's written as, um, I think I should say, union. Yeah, there's a new, the Greek letter N. There's an N at the end, so it's not Junia or Junias, or anything like that. It's, yeah. Yeah, so basically, um, in English, we use word order to know and understand the relationship between words. Mm -hmm. Um, In Greek, it's not so much word order as you put different case endings onto things so that you know what's what. So what's a subject, what's an accusative, and an accusative is a direct object. So it's the one that receives the verb. So here we have greet, the verb, um, Andronicus and Junia. So Andronicus and Junia are greeted, hence in Greek, Junia is written as um, union, and Andronicus as um, Andronicon. So it's, again, that's just how it's written so that it can signal that it's an an accusative case. Yeah. Um, Now, here's where it gets a little um, odd, and you can already see, maybe see where we're going with this. Um, In Greek, on the grammatical level, this could represent a masculine or feminine name when it comes to Junia. So it could be Junia or Junius if we're thinking just sheerly in terms of grammar. Yep. And again, the accent mark isn't really helpful here. Some people think it might be, but it's added historically later to the, our Greek text. So yep. that's out. Um, sometimes you can see where people's, uh, <laughs> uh, where a Greek New Testament um, has its bias depending on where they put the accent mark. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question then becomes, you know, if it's ambiguous um, in terms of grammar, because um, the case ending could indicate that it's for either gender, how do we know how to take it? Yeah. Why are we so um, steadfast that Junia is a woman? Um, well, the thing is, it's not really a name that's known for males. Yeah. Uh, Junius is not. So the, the feminine form would be um, Jun- uh, Junia. And the masculine one, uh, Junius. Yep. So the masculine form, Junius, there's no such thing. Yeah. Um, it doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, Richard Servant flat out says the, the name Junius is not extant in any Greek or Latin document of the New Testament milieu. It just doesn't exist. Yeah, so basically um, it's like saying, well, technically Melissa could be a name of a guy in the United States. Well, I guess, yeah, that's technically true. Anything's possible. But could does not equal the most reasonable. So if I reference Melissa, my friend Melissa, you're probably going to think I'm talking about a female. Like, unless there's some sort of crazy qualifier. Um, so it's that's kind of the situation here. Um, now, 
here's where we get into some of the details where some people will contest that a little bit. Hmm. Um, so I know Peter Lamp um, notes about 250 feminine examples in Roman and literature uh, in Roman literature for Junia as a female name. So yeah, so there are actually a lot of female examples. That's actually quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, and I, I say this only because um, Gruderman Piper like to say that, oh, it's actually a very rare fem- name for a woman. Mm-hmm. That's not true. That's not true in the least. Um, so, and actually, um, I'm going to tell you of a servant article later. Um, you can reference it on page 468 on this article um, for Richard Servin. He gives you a bunch of examples and things that you can look at if you really want to dig into this. It's a technical, but it's a really good article. Yeah, but um, the thing is, though... Um, Ruben Piper really think they found an example of <laughs> Junius. Um, so in, just so you know, it's such an upward battle. Like, let's just say we grant him, like, there's possibly, like, two examples. They're not actually very probable, but even still, you've got two against 250. So, yeah. and the two examples are highly suspect. Yes. Um, so the first... Um, comes from what's been attributed to, at least in the ninth in the ninth century, Epiphanius, um, and it's you've got that one. I think it's a he uses a masculine pronoun somewhere. I think maybe it's, he also thought Priscilla is a guy too. Yeah, so, so not a good source. Yeah, so in that example, you do have the person using a, and it's a later it's a later source. Um, suspect attribution um it's because it used a masculine pronoun in there yeah um but again there's other like bizarre mix-ups like nick said like priscilla's also male which we know you know everyone knows female um interestingly too this person also thought that priscilla andronicus and junia were all bishops in the church later (laughs) so that could have something to do why with why this person you know assumed you know, they must be all well, masculine. Well, women, women can't be bishops, so ergo facto, yeah. this has to be a guy. There's another odd reference in Origen of Junius, um, but in context, actually, uh, Origen thought that, or assumed that Junia was a woman. Um, the masculine hmm. form is probably, it's considered a later corruption. Oh, interesting. Um, by a lot of people, so, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you can't really go off of it, but again, best case scenario for those that want to say... Um, there is such a thing as the name Junius. You've got two very suspect examples against 250. So, eh, not very good. Yeah, the percentage. Don't give me the odds on that one. You know, I wouldn't go yeah. to the bank on that. Even if, if I were complimentarian, I wouldn't go to the bank on that. Yeah. And, I mean, here's the thing. Um, here's another reason um, to think that Junia was a woman. Um, the Greek and Latin commentators um, to the 16th century also thought or assumed Junia was a woman. Um, I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, John Chrysostom, um, AD 407, um, believes that or assumes that this is both a apostle and a woman. And here's what he says. And he, by the way, Chrysostom is no uh, fan of female leaders. Um, he, he basically just acknowledges that the New Testament has all these examples of female leaders, but just can't believe it and says men need to step up later, but... Yeah, it just goes to show ethical praxis wasn't really an oper- operative in the sex of Jesus. But so. you have him reading a Greek text, an early um, church father reading a Greek text, and 
just going, oh yeah, you know, female apostle. So yep. here's here's what he says. To be an apostle is something great, but to be outstanding among the apostles, just think what a wonderful song of praise that is. They were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title of apostle. Nice. So there it is. Well, it's not only that you've got, as we said, uh, Ambrosiaster, Jerome, Theodora, and John of Damascus all believe Junia was uh, a female apostle. Yeah, and there's so, a ton, too. Like, that's just a small handful. There's there's a ton of people, um, even later, like Peter of Abelard, like... Peter Lombard, too, yeah. I think. And yeah, just basically, without this Epiphanius guy and modern complementarians, you don't have any exception the first, you know, say, thousand years of the church. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll get to that. I mean, it's really just, yeah, certain people were just assumed, made some assumptions and went from there. Yeah, that's um, true. But, you know, in the early part of the church to the 16th century, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah, female apostle. They're, the they're earliest just... Greek speakers that we have had yeah. no problem with a woman apostle. Uh, not that they didn't have well, a okay, problem with yeah. it, but they just, they read Greek and they're like, oh, yeah, female apostle. There it is. <laughs> yep, that's yeah. what the text says, prominent among the apostles or noteworthy. Yeah, but... they used other rationalizations why that wasn't a good thing, um, perhaps. But, yeah, so there it is. Yep. Um, so, you know, with all that... You know, if the people of the time and or even like right after into the 16th century didn't see this as a masculine name in any way. And if there's all these examples of Junia being a name, but no Junius, like why are people still wanting to see this as the Junius name, a masculine name? Yeah. Like, why would anyone do that? Um and um, Elgin, Eldon J. Epp um, traces much of the history of this name's evolution from Junia um, into Junius um, from like the Middle Ages and maybe even popularized by Luther's translation. Hmm. So basically the short answer is it's bias plus use. Gotcha. So, you know, you've got a couple people biased like, well, you know, must have been a man because yeah. we don't, we, we've tend to just believe that men were in authority, you know, yeah. we're going to make, you know, an masculine name. Yeah. Um, we're going to make one up. Um, not thinking, they're probably not thinking very hard. This is probably not a conspiracy, by the way. This is just like people just doing, I mean, all the time our bias enters into things. Oh yeah. Um, and then if you get a couple of people that are, um, noteworthy that do this, then it just gets reproduced and people just take it for, you know, so, for instance, in the in English world, um, interestingly, the King James Version got it right, but the RV changed it to Junius in 1881. So, yeah, people, yeah. yeah, as it turns out, people make mistakes versus being, I mean, rather, I'd rather assume incompetence instead of malice. And so, yeah, I, I think it's just. And we all do that. We have a slip of the tongue. Um, yep. Which we will get to maybe later, if I remember, um, a certain retraction. Anyway, <laughs> um, if we don't get to the retraction, you guys have to remind us in the comments. Tweet at Allison. Tweet, tweet no, it. tweet it at Nick. Don't tweet it at me. I yeah, tweet it at I'm Nick. I'm not going to know if they're going to be talking. Anyway. Say, where's the retraction, Nick? Anyway. Okay, sorry. Anyway. Um, okay, so that said, um, here's another thing that came down the pike um, for why this is a masculine name. But this came way later historically, and I think this is more of a rationalization. Hmm. So it's kind of like... Um, you know, maybe our our minds can't quite wrap around this being a woman. Um, and maybe we read a reference somewhere else um, that, you know, just very shorthandedly assumed this is masculine. Yeah. So we're going to just 
duplicate this theory um, without realizing, but it's the name contraction theory. And so that's kind of a interesting um, thing. Um, so basically what the name contraction theory is, um, is that Junius is a shortened version of the masculine name. I'm going to try this. Uh, Junianus. Is that right? Junianus. Junianus. I, I guess that's what I'd go for. Yeah, Junianus. Otherwise, it sounds dirty if you say it the other way. That's true. And we don't want that. Yeah. Can't have that. Nope. All right. So um, basically, after all the Greek... Um, basically, Greek does shorten names all the time. Yep. That happens. Um, and... The problem here is there's no such thing as a shortened name Junius for this name. That's just not, it doesn't exist. So, I mean, what we mean by shortened name, so um, it could be um, Catherine becomes Katie or Kathy. Um, Joseph becomes Joe. Yep. Um, but it's kind of, uh, it's like coming up with something common, maybe, um, and I don't know, it, it, there's just no shortened version that exists like this. So it wouldn't be yeah. something that would be, it's an evidenceless theory. Yeah. So it's basic. Yeah. There's no evidence for this is, is the short of it. There's absolutely no evidence. Right. Um, it would, the shortened version would be something else perhaps. Um, and not every, um, elongated name had a shortened form. You exactly. Know, same, same as in English. Yeah. Um, so it's just more of a rationalization of how this genius could, possibly have come to exist but again as we've seen it doesn't exist anywhere yep. um no extant document has that name yeah in all the new testament world yeah. just, it just doesn't exist and that's really bad if you if you're arguing for this on the exclusion of women of from the apostleship and leadership and stuff like that yeah and the reason why this is so threatening is because if there's a woman at the highest level of authority apostle then um ergo maybe they're, they can be senior pastors or have other leadership positions in the church. Right. And we can't have that. Um, so even if, you know, most of us don't have, quote, the title of apostle in the sense that the New Testament used it, um, it's a threat for those reasons. Right. Um, so here's another, um, I'll just quickly go through a couple of other um, things that might be good to know, especially if you encounter someone that wants to bring up some of these nuances. Um, and that is that uh, Junia is actually a Latin, you know, from a Latin name. Yep. Um, the Latin form of the name is um, a clan name. So it's, um, this is going to sound similar to the other, but I'll explain in a second. The clan name is uh, Unius or Unia. So it's not to be confused um, with the Greek masculine form we've, were, we've been saying doesn't exist. Um, it's a different spelling. So hmm. I'll try to give it to you sort of in English letters so you can maybe understand a little bit what I'm trying to explain. Yeah. Um, so all Latin names um, ending in I-U-S. So Yoda, um, Upsilon, Sigma, for example, Unius, um, are converted to, in Greek, I-O-S. So I-U-S becomes I-O-S. Hmm. So Unius would then be um, maybe something like... Um, uh, Ulius or something like that. So ending in OS, hmm. not AS. So in Greek, um, the mask, the, the, the fake masculine name they choose, um, and maybe English spelling would be J U N I A S. But the, 
the form that it would take if this was the case, if it was actually um, coming from being converted into Greek from Latin, would be OS, not AS. Gotcha. Okay. So Omicron, Omicron Sigma versus um, Alpha Sigma. Gotcha. So, um, but on the other hand, the Greek female version does fit nicely with the Latin. So it is compatible. Um, yeah. And so that's what we'd expect. So you don't have to do any weird um, jumping through hoops or gymnastics um, to conceive of Junia. Um, also, something else, and we won't go into too much detail on this, um, but someone might bring it up. Um, some people appeal to the surrounding area, the substantives and pronouns being masculine. So like kinsman, fellow prisoner, noteworthy. Um, the thing is, and again, this gets into grammar, there's only one form possible here um, for masculine and feminine gender in the plural. It's a generic gender, basically, in yep. use. So the meaning is masculine or feminine. Right. It's like saying sin is feminine and making a huge deal out of it. Yeah. It's like, no, Homarchia, that's just, yeah. yeah, that's just what the, whenever, and Servan notes this, it's like whenever a group of mixed genders is referred yeah. to or used, the masculine form is is what's used. That's just, that's just how they thought and they wrote. Yeah. And again, um, in, in grammar, grammatical gender does not equal actual like person, Bi biological. biological gender. Right. These are different things. And you get into all sorts of like weird things sometimes grammatically in some of these languages, like for, I think if I'm remembering correctly in Hebrew, for instance, father is in the randomly in the feminine gender. So, you know, again, like it's a mistake to put too much stock sometimes on what grammatical gender something is in. Um, it comes up sometimes, sometimes not. It's, it's a little more complicated. Well, it's, it's something that if, if anyone who's taken like a first year Greek class, this is yeah. something that's said to you like day one. Yeah. And so anyone who's making this argument either didn't listen to their Greek teacher or they don't know what they're talking about. And you can't make really much out of this. And so it's one of those things where you just kind of go, nope, sorry, the, the grammatical gender of this doesn't give you what you think you want in this text. Yeah. And again, in this case, it's the only form possible, like, again, yep. for in the plural. So it's it's a specific rule. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I'd like to just finish by saying um, there's a couple of things like works I would recommend um, specifically in regards to the... Um, the gender section of this whole debate. Mm -hmm. um, I actually found a nice, concise summary of the debate um, that some of you guys might want to just read through because um, it'll give you a sense if you want to just um, review and before you go into more complicated works. It's actually um, someone who, it, it's a blog. So if you want to, you know, fool around a bit, it's um, BJ Reynolds. Uh, dot wordpress.com so that's b-j-r-e-y-n-o-l-d-s so i think he has a very good summary um this was actually written back in november 30th 2010 um but if you want another maybe more popular level book um scott mcknight wrote a very good book um, that someone recommended i think scott linke on twitter yeah yeah um titled junia is not alone but the two that I would recommend for digging deeper um, for the history of the debate, um, Eldon J. Epps, Junia, the First Woman Apostle. And then for the contraction theory specifically, um, I'd read Richard Servan's article, A Note Regarding the Name Junius in Romans 16.7. That's in New Testament Studies. Yeah. And Servan is C-E-R-V-I-N. 
uh, really good article. It's 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 short. It's about five pages, but it's incredibly in depth. He's also a linguist and has done a lot of work. Yeah, he actually um, wrote had a, you can track down the back and forth between him and Wayne Grudem on Kefalay as yep. well. Um, he he has some very good work overall. Um, he's an excellent scholar. Yeah, and he has a classical Greek background, which and a, a lot linguistic of, background. Yeah. Too. So a lot of um, people that are just New Testament scholars don't necessarily have the strong linguistic background, and they don't have knowledge of the classics. So sometimes they have very insulated views from other New Testament scholars that are only looking at um, maybe the Greek New Testament, rather than knowing more of the sense of the language as a whole. And in addition to the commentary on on gender and junior, in a very early manuscript called P46, it's probably compiled around... 200 CE, uh, so very early, it's a very early manuscript, we have a textual variant in, regarding the name Junia. Mm. The scribe changed the name to Julia, perhaps yeah. to indicate that he or she wanted to be clear that this is a woman's name, or perhaps this is the same person mentioned in Romans 16.15. It's kind of hard to tell. Well, it's, isn't that the Latinized name? It might be. Yeah, it's the Lat- I think that's the Latinized name. So again, that's why you have some variations. I mean, originally yeah. it was a Latin name anyway. Yeah. But just goes to show the change was toward a feminine, which is interesting that you would expect if this person were a bigoted scribe, for example, to change it to like a decidedly masculine name. Oh, no, we can't have this. Got to change it. But the person doesn't. And so it's it's just kind of interesting. It's just one of those cool little throwaways. Oh, well, the textual variant supports the feminine name, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so we get to the fun part, the episteme and tois apostolois, the prominent among the apostles. And so uh, what is interesting here is you have the present tense form of I, me, the Isen, uh, the is, so to speak, the being verb, indicates that both Andronicus and Juni are currently occupying a certain status already. Stanley Porter makes a big deal out of that. These are, these, this is something they have attained, that they have mm. presently. And so there's a few that take the phrase uh, epistemoi and tois apostolis as exclusive, that is, the ones who are already something as they're being well known to the apostles versus a quote inclusive sense prominent among the apostles like the common English Bible. And that's uh, Dan Wallace and Michael Bury of Dallas Seminary. I think another variant was in the eyes of the apostles. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, and again, these are just like, well, I mean, it's kind of like they've created almost a new Greek rule. We'll just get to, there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. And, and basically, no one until these guys really has really argued for this kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's a very new thing. And it's not something that any early church father no. would have looked at or taken seriously. They would, kind of would have balked, like, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? And when you're inventing new ways to kind of get around this problem, you you, you got to question your basic exegetical motives. But anyway. And it shows, like, I, I would like to say something on that in terms of evidence. So this isn't a free-for-all. Like, sometimes you get passages that are ambiguous and could go either way and you have to give credit. Yep. Worst credit's due, even if you don't agree, ultimately. But sometimes, like, people will do rationalizations. Yep. And it's usually transparent because rationalizations oftentimes aren't backed by a lot of evidence. Yep. And so in almost every instance they cite in favor of such an, we'll say the exclusive, the well-known to reading, uh, either is incredibly ambiguous or could go either way. And so it's not as if they have a clear cut. Here's a clear cut example from the time of the new Testament where this phrase plus the, you know, N plus the dative will mean an exclusive to, and so the closest one I found that they could go to is, is from Psalms of Solomon. It's an apocryphal work, uh, 2.6, which talks about Israel being marked, quote, with a slave brand among the nations. So you have that, that end preposition, that in, on, or among. 
And even if one wants to take this knowledge, this idea as exclusive, the aspect of the text is clear. Israel is seen or among within this as marked and oppressed from the perspective of the Gentiles, but they're already included within this kind of sphere. And the preposition makes it clear. Uh, a group within a group observing the violence or the branding. So you have more that these could, they, you know, we could appeal to, but the very fact that they kind of throw these out and most scholars like Epp or Richard Balcom or Linda Belleville kind of go, what? Like, and it's, it's anything you, it's something that you learn in Greek uh, with the preposition and Stanley Porter calls it, um, it means in or in the realm of as a lexeme. And so uh, second, the preposition itself doesn't mean to, it just doesn't mean that. No. And even if one wants to delete the preposition here, it wouldn't automatically give the grammar an exclusive sense. Yeah, in day one, you learn in, on, and among, yep. like, are the basic meanings. Yeah, I've never seen in the Greek New Testament where it clearly means to. No. If the, the, most, the most you can say it means in an instrumental or agency sense of by. I mean, maybe. ace can be to. Yeah, Like, ace. he'd use something like ace, maybe. Yeah, ace, or more likely he'd use uh, Paul if he wanted to communicate. It'd be hupa, yeah. tone, apostolone, like there a genitive. Something. So... It's not, just even prima facie, if you want to say it's ambiguous, it's really not. No. And so one can see this kind of immediately after this phrase with the final cl prepositional clause, in Christ before me, which uses N, or refers to location or realm, in or within Christ. And so this is the same preposition, just carrying the kind of standard meaning. Yeah, and so again, rationalizations, um, oftentimes there's, there's no evidence or very, very scant evidence for it. And oftentimes, too, it goes against the grain of very strong evidence. And so that's what we're seeing here. Right. And in order to do those things, to challenge those things adequately, you have to actually show that your position is more plausible than the strong weight of evidence. You can't argue that it's merely possible because almost anything can be quote possible. Oh yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a cheat way of arguing. Yeah. So, well, it's just a possible reason. It's like, no, you have to give a good enough reason why it should be even at the table. Yeah. You can't possible just, you is can't... can possible with almost, you know, no exceptions can almost ever, always be true yeah it's a rhetorical tactic it doesn't actually prove the point i could be a brain in a van in a vat somewhere yeah like, somewhere yeah that's possible it's pos it is possible it is possible yes, you could be i will brain grant you that um and so the grammar itself is decidedly kind of against this exclusive standing and every use of the preposition n in Romans 16 itself is connected to an inclusive or incorporative or locative agent whether it's in cancrea explain that a locative incorporative uh it's in it's basically in christ language it's all throughout romans 16 romans 16 3 8 9 10 11 12 13 and 22 or in the lord it's someone who is in christ or in the lord it's you're you're located within the realm of christ okay there the, you go the sphere of christ so it's a way of saying you're in christ as a new creation or as a christian or as a you're beloved. in the realm of christ exactly you're you're not uh, yeah. you're not well known to christ you're in christ you're among christ as yeah, as the body of christ yeah. And so uh, just if you look just even beyond just that, you look at N and everywhere in Romans 16, it has that kind of meaning or the incorporative or the inclusive meaning. And so basically what you'd have to say is in this one instance, in all of these instances within this, this preposition shifts meaning. And you just, it's, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow even if you're inclined to agree with them. And so third, every extant, or as we've said, every extant early church father affirmed an inclusive understanding of the phrase as Linda Belleville's article shown in New Testament studies. So early Greek speakers, almost 2,000 or 1,500 or 2,000 years removed from the complementarian debate or argument, would probably double take this sort of gymnastic. Like they just, there's no, it is no mistake that many complementarians themselves do not accept this reading. Uh, and it, it appears that it's, it, it, to be exclusively, pun intended, a complementarian modernistic attempt to get away from the fact that Paul calls a woman an apostle. You think that Paul's language here 
itself, which is countercultural, would be something worth appraising and, and plotting, showing the world, hey, Christianity is not sexist, that the Bible is not sexist. Well, especially like all the female leaders that are mentioned in, con- yep. but of course, you know, those are all oftentimes explained away too. Well, those are all subordinated to a text written four or five years later in One Timothy. Yeah, so that that's what happened. We've discussed that a lot. Where yeah. You know, never mind all the examples, you know, they all must be explained or rationalized under our interpretation of this one text. And so when the ESV or another translation, I think it's the NET or the NLT, I forget which one, adopts an exclusivist sense of the reading well known to the apostles based on, frankly, minimal evidence when there's just a du- just so much evidence to the contrary, this is biased translation and biased exegesis, just plain and simple. If And you could, I mean, the only other debate I could see where a woman or a way of getting around this is taking a lower sense of the word apostle. And I think Doug Moo does that, yeah. which is not an unreasonable move. Yeah. That it, one actually we will get there, but yeah, that has a lot more out. credibility. Right. But the, you know, the prompt the well-known too is just linguistically and just grammatically it's, it is telling that most grammarians with the exclusion of the two who are arguing for this, who are complementarians who teach at a complementarian seminary, don't accept this reading. And Stanley Porter basically goes, no. And he's uh, I just, I, I, it's just no one accepts this aside from certain circles. Yeah, and usually what happens is they'll 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 just switch back and forth. Nick just drank some of my limoncello. <laughs> because I'm out of my beer. <laughs> He's like, let me drink more. This is terrible. Oh, gosh. Um, it's not that bad. Dan Wallace is a great guy. I love the guys. Like, right. Brandon, so but it's just not a good article. It's not a good argument. Anyway, what people usually do is they switch between. Okay, you know. This was really apostle, but not a woman, or definitely a woman, but not an, not an apostle. You know, in any sense of the term, the way the way Paul uses it. Exactly. Yeah. And so the question then becomes, um, what is an apostle? And that's where the pivot usually goes to. Mm-hmm. So the apostles themselves are in, obviously an inclusive group, you know, which includes Paul and dozens of others. Um, and what is interesting here in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 talks about Christ being seen by over 500 brothers and sisters. Uh, if Junia and Andronicus are indeed apostles, whatever they are, they would probably be within this group of 500 brothers and sisters if we're forced to place them according to Paul's brief and compressed writing in 1 Corinthians 15. However, if Junia is the same person in Luke's gospel as Joanna in Luke, uh, oh gosh, Luke... 10, oh, I can't remember if it, no, Luke 8 and Luke 24. Uh, if this is the same person, and Richard Balcom has written a really good article in saying that it is, uh, then you have a woman being witness to Jesus uh, much earlier in Luke. And so basically, to be an apostle is to either, to have witnessed Jesus' resurrection, or to have been with Jesus from the beginning, or to be an itinerant messenger, or what have you. If Joanna is indeed the woman, if Ju- if Junia is the woman named Joanna in Luke's gospel, then she would have seen Jesus' resurrection. She would have been the woman at the tomb, which means which makes sense that Paul says she was in Christ before him. And so, if anyone kind of, and this is where the the idea of apostleship comes in, uh, if if one wants to say that Junia and, and Andronicus too, which means if we're throwing Junia under the bus, we're throwing Andronicus under the bus too. We're not apostles. One would have to wonder what Paul's own status would be as an apostle, because no one in Christian scholarship questions Paul's apostleship. We should do a spoof article and make Andronicus a, f- a female. Oh no, I think there was actually an article that actually basically said is Andronicus an apostle. Okay, I, I we know. need to write. We need to write an article. <laughs> you and I on the split frame of reference is Andronicus a woman? 
Okay. Question mark. Unfortunately, people if, would if just take can, us seriously yeah. and think we're crazy. But people balk when Junior comes up. But when Paul says he's an apostle, oh, well, that's fine. But when Junior comes up, oh no, we got to figure out a way to figure. We out will him. make all. We'll do all sorts of crazy gymnastics to make him both a female and not an apostle. Right. For sure. And what makes the the lowercase apostle? It you know assuming maybe you know, granting the fact that this is probably Joanna. I think it probably is Joanna. Um, no other Christian in Rome had any other Pauline document at this time aside from what they're given by Phoebe, Romans. So they don't can't, they can't flip to Acts or Corinthians or 1 Timothy for information on other women's conduct. So they, all they have are Phoebe, Priscilla, Junia, Mary, Julia, and all the women in their midst. They're limited to Romans and what Paul talks about as apostle in Romans 1, 1 and 1, 13. And his identification with Andronicus and Junia seems to strongly suggest they're part of the apostolic witness of early Christianity, prominent among the apostles. If people do not greet the apostles, and no one in Romans 16 is identified as an apostle except these two, then it seems that Paul is greeting the apostles, the initial itinerant missionaries who probably established the church and were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. That means these two people are the reason Paul is even writing to Rome in the first place, which puts these two people on a higher pedestal than even before. It's not like they can flip to 1 Timothy 2 and be like, well, huh, you know, Eve and all these problems. Like They don't have that. They've got the women in front of them doing all the work. And so it's one of those things. You can't pivot to 1 Timothy 2.12 when you've got this thing right in front of you. And it doesn't even make sense to say well-known to the apostles because there's no other apostles in the area. Hmm. Like what apostles are they well-known to? And so just you break, you break down the grammar. It doesn't make sense. You break down the gender. It doesn't make sense. This is a woman apostle who's prominent among the group known as apostles. And basically what Stanley Porter said I thought was really profound is here Paul appears to command a man and a woman, possibly a married couple, disputable, but you know that is a legitimate disputable point. Not just as apostles, but as standout apostles, which means that women are and were an integral part of early church leadership. And despite the fact that all these other examples people kind of throw out, Junia exists, and she's likely among the top tier of leadership in, in the church. And this is a testament to the fact that women from the resurrection have always been doing what God has called them to do. They've always been going out with the message of the resurrected Jesus to the ends of the earth, to Rome, and all these different places. And basically, this is gives us grounds to suggest maybe Junior was not the only female apostle in the early church. Probably not. I mean, like, lots of prominent leaders, it would appear, in the New yeah. Testament. And yeah. actually, I mean, frankly, even in the Hebrew Bible, and we'll That's get true. into that later. Um, so it's one of those things where all of us do this as human beings. And mm -hmm. it's not... I think an inherently sinful process, but it helps us make sense of our world. You know, we see right. something and we have to fit it into a framework somehow. Yep. And sometimes if it doesn't fit into our framework, um, sometimes we try to force it to rather than right. adjusting our framework to encompass this other thing. And, you know, I mean, we're all susceptible to this and, you know, we all do it, you know, and it, again, so. This is what makes humans great, though, because we're able to process information to such a great degree and yep. um, make sense of our world. Um, but again, we have to be careful and on guard that we don't um, leave out things that are perhaps going to challenge our paradigm. Right. And Joanna or Junia, because and this is what's interesting, too, is we kind of gloss over this, too. They, Andronicus and Junia have a status as someone who are probably Jewish like Paul in prison like Paul, probably starved, brutalized, yeah. and beaten for his and their faith for the resurrected Messiah like Paul. They suffered like Paul. And so this whole thing of, you know, 
man's position here or man's job or man's role is just completely obliterated by this text because her existence challenges the fact that early Christianity was exclusively sexist or male-centered and that women were inherently excluded from positions of leadership just on, on, on an ontological basis. And it, it also asserts, I think, and this is something I think is really powerful, God's sovereignty in revealing himself as in the resurrection to whoever he wanted to. Yeah. And what he desires sovereignly to do is reconciling the world. If he wants to use a woman, who can stand in his way? And apparently Paul didn't stand in his way. That's why he greets them. These people doing incredible work. And frankly, the women in the early church were known to be badasses. Yep. I'm going to just say it. Chris Austin called them lions, I think. Yeah. Our women are lions. Like, again, and like, um, even in the paper I I, I did recently for um, Eve Christology, which you mm. can find um, going through our podcast, because yeah. um, we put it up, um, these women, like these women suffered and died yeah. in brutal ways. Oh, yeah. um, a lot of them were attributed masculine qualities um, because um, they just, I guess their witness transcended um, the, the, the boundaries they people usually put on gender in the ancient yeah. world. And women did this in so many ways, not just as martyrs um, who were likened to the crucified Christ, interestingly, yep. Um, but as leaders within the church, you know, this was just in Christ, um, people became who they were meant to be in Christ as the Imago Dei. And it, it affirms uh, Junia and Adronicus's agency as people willing to suffer, willing to be oppressed and brutalized. And it shows just an incredible camaraderie that Paul greets them with just his highest commendation. These are his fellow kinsmen, people who were imprisoned with him, people who have gone through hell with him. Yeah. And it's just one of those things when you see people kind of, you know, dismiss Junius, Junius, or dismiss, oh, well-known too. These are not well-known acts. These are just, if these, these are markers of incredible status as people who suffer and were brutalized for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. And when you kind of capitulate to a later text that is disputable, like 1 Timothy 2, you're silencing the witness of these two people. And as well, the women here who break the bounds of what quote-unquote complementarians say women can do. The Bible is more interesting and wild than that. And you can't really tame this by saying this is a dude yeah. or that it's prominent or, or well-known too, not prominent, well-known too. And it's just like, let this text of scripture, the text of scripture is a lion. Let it roar and do its thing and adjust your expectations accordingly. If God sovereignly uses a woman apostle to bring the message to Rome and Paul greets her, who are you to say, no, that can't be, that can't be what God does. I don't think God cares about your feelings. Yeah, it's a good little nod. Yeah, I think people who know what I'm saying get the joke. I think uh -huh. it's kind of funny. <sighs> yeah, it's one of those things too where um, it's about really embracing our history as hmm. Christians yeah. and using examples that of the people, great people that came before us. Yeah. Um, for who they really were. Like, let's not try to whitewash them as you know, or sanitize them to be what we expect. You'd think this would be something people would latch onto and just be like, look at, look at our history. Yeah. We're not a bunch of sexist dicks. We're wonderful. Well, at the you very know? least, you know. Well, yeah, but you'd think this would be something we'd be proud of, that Christianity was a religion founded on for slaves, women, and children, that this will be something we're proud of. And that's something, and, and here's some, here's something too, that was something that was meant as derogatory Yep. Um, for Kel the early church. That was Celsus's middle finger at, at origin. Yeah, and I mean, frankly, though, this is the pride of Christianity. The people that are crushed, the people that are um, made out to be these evil, you know, maybe they're cannibals. Um, or They're incestual because they, they call each other yeah. brother and sister and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, our history is being slandered. Our history is being... Um, 
humiliated yeah. um, and being icky, creepy, a bunch of like low lives or low status people. And we took that just like Jesus did and used it as a badge of honor. Well, we we cared so much. For example, early Christianity cared so much about children. We invented a word for people who like sexually assault children. Yeah, we we coined the term "pythoros," this child destroyer, mm. because of what the Romans would do to children. And we would we had a very high view of women and of slaves and of children too. Yeah, and also, I mean, the early church is are the ones that were thinking, you know what? Let's not um, allow infant babies that were especially most yep. of them female to be killed. Yep. You know, they were not for infanticide. Oh, very much not. That's part of our history as Christians. Yeah, and Judaism as well. Judaism expressly condemned infanticide. And it's something we have in common with, with them. And it's just It just goes to show Christianity, from its earliest conception, has been a religion for the oppressed and for people that society didn't want or society didn't care about. And that's kind of where Luke's gospel comes in. It's good news for the poor and the oppressed. Yeah. And I think that's something... If we take the the weight of Junia's evidence seriously, we see a woman who is at the height of of of, uh, of leadership in the Roman Church, who suffered, who didn't yep. wasn't given a status because she's a woman. She wasn't tokenized. No, she was get she took the status of being a witness of Jesus, who was there with him from the beginning, who remembered his words in Luke's gospel. And the ones of status yep. in the early church are the ones that lay down their lives. Yep, the ones who suffer and die for the cause of yep. the gospel. And by saying, oh, they're they're well-known too, or this is a man, or she's not really an apostle, it diminishes her sacrifice, and it diminishes the call God gave to her as a as an agent of reconciliation for the gospel. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing. Like, all these people are held up, um, all these people in Rome 16 are held up for us for as examples, yep. really, for us to follow after. And in order to be truly Christian, um, it's not one where we try to assert our status above others. Yep. Um, we we take on the humiliation, we take on the um, all the labels from other people, and we act like agents of God's kingdom of peace in the world anyway, you know? And it's, again, I think I've um, been on a tirade later on Twitter. Um, I, I think in um, maybe especially evangel pop evangelical Christianity, hmm. um, it's all about appearances and, you know, doing this or that good deed or whatever. Um, to be seen and, you know, neglecting the inner self, neglecting um, the rot inside. And mm. the thing is, um, as Christians, we're called to be like these leaders in um, Romans 16. You yeah. know, we're called to sacrifice. We're yeah. called to say, yes, I'll take on um, humiliation. I'll take on any label that you can dish out at me um, because I know my identity in Christ and I'm yeah. here to represent God's kingdom on earth. And just the language throughout of, of greet this person who's worked hard. And there's just this utter impartiality of people working or being believers or the women name, the men name. There's just no partiality. There's no partialism here. It's it's people who have suffered and worked in the most hostile environment yeah. in the ancient world to be a non-Roman, you know, polytheist. Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, the, the in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, all throughout Romans 16. It's, it's so utterly Christocentric that... A, a pagan listening to this at that time would be like, who the hell is this Lord? Who the hell is this Christ? Yep. And it's an assault on them because these they're all one in him. They're not one amongst many gods. They're all one in this Messiah, this resurrected yeah. Messiah. And the only way they know about it is because probably jo Junia and Andronicus went there and told people. Yeah. I mean, imagine being Tertius after he finishes writing this epistle. And he turns to Paul and goes, 
who's Andronicus and Junia? And then Paul gets to say, oh, let me tell you about what they did. You know, it's just one of those great little things. If, if you think this woman has a history and she does, there's a lot to be said about it. And there's just a lot that we don't get to see. But, and being in the Lord or yep. in Christ um, mm-hmm. transfigures um, one's situation and status yep. continually. And we see that throughout the New Testament. Exactly. Um, people are not what they seem in the Lord. Yeah. Circumstances are not what they seem in the Lord. And that's something that the martyrs really recognized. I want to commend uh, Richard Balcom's Gospel Women, Studies in, of the Named Women in the Gospels. He has a whole section on Joanna mm-hmm. and Junia. The whole book is wonderful, but I want to read a little section. This is at the end. And by the way, yes. um, the connection between Junia and Joanna is a lot more speculative in the territory. Um, there's some evidence, but just so you know, um, some of the other stuff is a lot, a lot more crystal clear. This gets into a little bit more speculative territory. It's my own personal opinion, and it's something I would argue for, but it's not something I can assert yeah. as dogma. And if you want to see like a brief... Um, maybe summary of this argument. I wrote something for Christians for Biblical Equality's um, Women's History Month mm-hmm. quite a while back when I was an intern. Right. Um, on I think it's the profile is either Junia or Joanna. Yeah. Um, go look it up, and they actually have um, Women's History Month going now because I believe it's always in March. Yep. And so every um, several days, I think they have a profile of a different woman that contributed tremendously to the Christian church, church universal. So Mm. these women are from the um, distant past across cultures, and some of them are even alive today. So go check it out. If someone ever says, uh, well, what have women ever done for us (laughs) in society and the church? Um, They will have it. And they they do this every year. So please go check it out. Right. And and the Joanna Junior, it is fairly speculative, although Ben Witherington and Richard Bauckham do seem to hold to it. But it is, it is a little more speculative, uh, granted. But this is from Richard Balcom's book, page 198. It's just, I, I, was, I was very moved when I read it, so I think it deserves a quote. It was because of their, that's Andronicus and Junia, apostolic labors in Rome for more than a decade, while Paul was founding churches in Asia Minor and Greece, that Paul, writing to the Christians of Rome in the mid-50s, was able to call Junia and her husband outstanding among the apostles. Christians in Rome were often suspected of being politically subversive, no kidding, Hmm. and from time to time their leaders were arrested. Well, we know what's going on there. When Paul wrote this letter, Junian and Andronica were imprisoned. We know no more of them, but perhaps some years earlier, the evangelist Luke spent many hours with Junia, hearing from her the versions of the gospel traditions as she had long been telling them. So it just gives us, you have to speculate, but there is is a history to this woman. She didn't just drop out of of midair. And so all this to say, we have a woman apostle, who's outstanding among the apostles, who's probably Jewish like Paul, who suffered with Paul, was brutalized like Paul, and was in Christ before Paul. And she's among a many, many long list of powerful women and men in Romans 16 of people who suffered, who strove, who worked hard, were first converts in Asia and all these other people. Uh, And they are probably all in Christ because of the work of this woman and her husband. Yep. It's a good place to be. I don't know yeah. about you, but I'd be very, I'd be very proud to learn that Junia was the reason we have Romans, or the reason that we have a church in Rome worth writing to. Who was the letter carrier, though? Wasn't it? It was Phoebe. Phoebe, yep. Yep, Phoebe delivered this. Imagine Phoebe giving this to Junia, being like, "Paul says hello," and imagine what that name means to her. It's like, oh gosh, it's Paul, my fellow mm-hmm. prisoner, my coworker, my my fellow Jewish, you know, compatriot. And so there's just a lot of really this cool stuff. This is a close-knit on. group, too. I mean, if you think about some of the bond, maybe even with people in the military. Yeah. Um, like, you fought and died together. This is kind of a similar thing where people 
they're out spreading the message together and they're being thrown into like really nasty prisons together. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, there's, there, this is a very close knit community. Let's put yep. it that way. And when they say brother or sister, um, in Christ, um, that's the kind of bond we're supposed to have in Christ. Exactly. You know, it's not something that's just kind of, um, oh yeah, that's just someone that I'm supposed to, I don't know, be nice to occasionally. No, this is, this is a sacred bond that we have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And many of these ancient writers um, died with each other, died with each other or were put in prison together or were tortured together. And there's just, it just confirms that God will sovereignly do with us as he wants to do. And some that means, sometimes that means putting women in positions of power to, to lead and guide the church. Yep. I mean, who else to reveal, you know, the resurrection of his son to than the women who were faithful to him from the beginning. Yep. And now we've got a retraction in order possible retraction so we don't go back and listen to our tapes um or recordings <laughs> possibly because i'm a perfectionist um and aren't allowed near them yep but i was told recently by a listener um who i happen to know that they really like how nick and i balance each other out because sometimes one of us will start to make a blanket statement and the other will jump in to correct us where appropriate but unfortunately, this possible correction was incorrect. Just, um, just rip the band-aid off me right now. Just oh, it's okay. Yeah, whatever. Jesus loves you. Yeah, I better. Um, so, and I don't actually know because we haven't gone back to listen to it. But there was a misunderstanding that um, I said in First Timothy three one through twelve um, that there were no masculine pronouns in there, and that it was. Add later, and that maybe allegedly Nick corrected me and said, "Oh, well, there's one." Well, there is not one. I was probably thinking of something else at the time. Yeah, so there are no masculine pronouns in First Timothy three one through twelve, um, and actually, um, I will read um, Philip Payne's note on this because it's helpful. Um, just so you can kind of get the sense of it. Um, on the problem here, um, the NIV and NAB insert 14 masculine pronouns into 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 12. The JB 13, the RSV 10, the NRSV 9, and the NASB 9, which also inserts if any man into 1 Timothy 3, 1, where there is no man in the Greek. The NIV adds, deacons likewise are to be men, where there is no word for men in the Greek of 1 Timothy 3.8. In 1 Timothy 3.1-12, through 12, the NAB and NEB also add man or men four times, the JB three times, the RSV once. Only the CEV is faithful to the Greek in not adding a single, a single masculine pronoun, man or men, to either 1 Timothy 3.1-12 or Titus 1.5-9. Um, example, Grudem EF80 with references to Josephus and rabbinic literature. So, yes, not a single masculine pronoun in there. Um, so all that time in First Timothy 3 where you hear he, 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 any man, nope, not there. Yep. Um, what is there is tis, which is a interrogative pronoun. And um, basically you have, it's it's indefinite. Um, you have, it's masculine and feminine is the point. Yeah. It's, it's not a, a specific reference to a male or a female. Yep. There we go. And if you must look it up, um, you can actually check out um, William D. Mounts' 
Basics of Biblical Greek Grammar, um, the old version, um, page 80. So I'm not endorsing per se this as the best, um, I don't know, selection for learning Biblical Greek, but it has cool charts. The charts are what help you. Yep. Um, maybe we'll get into that another time. But Maybe. So what are we doing next time, Allison? All right. So we're coming to, we're starting to come to a close to doing a broad blanket approach to um, the New Testament. So probably next time we'll do um, the Gospel Women and Hebrews. Okay. Um, yeah. So we'll do that and then we'll get into the um, Old Testament. Oh, we should do Second John, the lady, the elect lady. Yeah. And Second John. Okay. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll put her in there too. Okay. Cool. Well, we'll do a collection. Um, there we go. You know, of the more general things, and then we'll do we'll get into the Old Testament. Finally, we had to start with the New Testament because everyone's fixated on First Timothy. So yeah, that's, that's true. That's just how it goes. Um, and so we'll get in there, and then after we get through the Old Testament, um, we'll probably start launching into more specific, targeted critiques of um, complementarian works. Yeah, or articles or ideas or something like that. Yeah, or maybe we'll go into like crazy amounts of detail on kephale head in greek you know yeah stuff like that um and so we'll do whole sections on that and maybe we'll do q a's like we'll answer or refute whatever so yeah and we'll be launching a patreon account and this will be the first time you guys have heard about it and which means i need to make it right now as soon as we finish recording but yeah if you want to support us and you know if you like what we're doing That'd be really cool. So it would be uh, something that'll be attached to this. Yep. We're both going to be in PhD programs. So <laughs> we need, we need that Patreon money, that insane amount of money that we're undoubtedly. Uh, no, yeah. but yeah, either way, if you want to support us, feel free. And we very much appreciate it. Allison will drink a beer every time. So no, I will You've heard it here. Allison no, will drink a beer. No, time get. no, yep, no. That's how it ends. Thank you.